From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Diversity and inclusion training across government is on hold tonight until the Office of Personnel Management can review and approve course materials. OPM Associate Director for Employee Services Dennis Dean Kirk writes the requirement includes materials agencies were already using before an executive order from President Trump September 22nd. Federal Times reports Kirk writes agencies should quote review and improve agency materials before submitting them to OPM. A bipartisan bill in the Senate would require agencies to develop and use a cybersecurity risk management framework. The bill from Republican Rob Portman and Democrat Gary Peters is a response to problems the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations found when it investigated agency cyber protections last year. FedScoop reports under the legislation, the Office of Management and Budget would have to build a risk-based budgeting model for agencies to use. The Air Force officially has a new vice chief of staff. The Senate confirmed Lieutenant General David Alvin for promotion to general and appointment to vice chief last week. Defense News reports General Alvin moves up from his job as director of strategy, plans and policy for the joint staff. The Defense Department's new Navy fleet plan could be a lot larger than anyone thought. Documents from the future Navy force study show the Navy could look toward a, a 530-ship fleet in the coming years. Captain Jerry Hendricks, U.S. Navy, retired as vice president of the Telemus Group. Jerry, welcome. It's good to see you again. What do you see when you read the reports of what the various force constructs are suggesting the Defense Department might do next? One, uh, first of all, it's good to see you again, Francis. Uh, thank you for having me on. One, I see that there is real recognition now that we need a larger Navy, that there is a strategic requirement driven by the fact that we are in a great power competition with primarily China, with also Russia, and that uh, so we need a larger fleet and able to cover these emerging requirements. Also, I'm seeing that there's a recognition that we need a much larger fleet. So all the rumors now are not around the number 355, which has been in use for the past four years since December of 2015 or 2016. Um, but in fact, looking at something much larger than that, in uh, numbers in the 500 range, uh, I'm also seeing the fact that there's general growing acceptance of the need for a high-low mix not only just the large combatants that we've depended on uh, for the last 70 years, but also smaller ships, frigates, corvettes, as well as unmanned platforms. And that's one of the key takeaways from virtually all these conversations is that unmanned must be part of the future fleet design uh, and that those ships must be counted, which has been a major debate within naval circles as to whether we can count those ships as part of the overall battle force. You and others have been advocating the high-low mix. I think you used that phrase the first time you and I had a conversation about anything, and that's probably 10 years ago, Jerry. What does that mean in the context of what technology is available today versus a decade ago when people were looking at this same issue? Well, the high-low mix debate actually goes back, you know, to the late 1960s, early 1970s. Uh, you know, uh, Chief of Naval Operations Elmo Zumwalt talked about the high-low mix at that point in time, but it's a, it's a need, it's a recognition of the need to have a balance between war-winning capabilities, which we generally assign to the high end, 
while also having the peace preservation aspects or capacity that the Navy is required to cover down on the 18 to 19 maritime regions of the world where the United States has defined national interests. What's interesting about this, of course, all your low end can, it's not like they can uh, not be useful to us in war. They have to help us by providing additional missile launch space, vertical launch system tubes uh, to carry the missiles, but at the same time that they would be cheaper to buy in order to uh, be out and about uh, in the world, uh, you know, providing security and defending international norms like a free sea and free navigation. So you cannot do that. Obviously, if you wanted to have a, a 500 ship Navy, they can't all be aircraft carriers, It'd be far too expensive, nor could they be rowboats because they wouldn't be combat credible. All of this analysis is about trying to find that sweet spot where you have combat credible low end forces that can supplement the high end. So regarding the cost, where does the money come from and what money is necessary based on what we know about what the Navy potentially will be doing here? Is this even possible uh, dollar wise, Jerry? Well, it's gonna have to start being possible and Secretary of Defense Esper has signaled that he's recognizing this during his recent speech at the Rand Institute in California he talked about the fact, or at least in his prepared remarks, that the Navy's overall shipbuilding budget was going to go from 11% of the Navy budget to 13%, which equates to something just above $4 billion more in shipbuilding, which is roughly what we need to begin adding two to three more ships per year, um, specifically in the high end. If I was to build low-end uh, frigates or corvettes, then I could get that number up much quicker. Um, and so there is general recognition where that dollars come from, whether it's an overall increase in the top line of DOD or whether the secretary, because he's taken uh, personal uh, control over this process, if the secretary moves money from other budgets, meaning either other services or out of his own OSD budget into the Navy, that's for up to him to decide, but it, the, it, this will not come without a cost. One of the ongoing debates of the past decade, Jerry, has been what happens to the carrier fleet and its size. Uh, Defense News writes about this future Navy force study. Uh, as of the April drafts, both the Cape and Hudson Institute teams were supportive of shrinking the number of supercarriers to nine from the current 11. That means you have eight actually in the water at any given time, one in dock. Where are you on that in, in that debate, Jerry? Well, of course, I've been... Uh part of this debate about the future of the aircraft carrier since around 2013 when I published a paper calling into question the relative cost of the Ford class aircraft carrier and its relative uh, relevance given the fact that its air wings range has shortened. If the carrier is to remain relevant into the future, then significant changes to include the inclusion of unmanned platforms, long range strike platforms in the carrier air wing will be necessary. I think what we're seeing here is a general consensus around the fact that the Ford class itself has become too expensive. We've built a platform that's too expensive to lose uh, with each one of them coming in around $15 billion each. And I think there's gonna be a real push to find something that's perhaps smaller, less expensive, and yet can still hold the 65 aircraft that are currently embarked aboard our supercarriers today. So I think that that is the plan going forward. I think we're also looking at plans to make greater use of the smaller carriers that we built normally to work with the Marine Corps, the LHAs and LHDs, uh, to be able to ferry F-35Bs, uh, uh, an interesting uh, somewhat shortened range uh, joint strike fighter that is stealthy, uh, you know, to and from the areas of combat and competition. 
So we're going to see some differences in employment of aircraft carriers, but I think we're going to see a difference in design of supercarriers coming soon. Jerry Hendricks, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back in the program. Great to be here with you, Francis. Up next, what's next now that the security clearance backlog isn't a backlog anymore? Straight ahead on Government Matters, the path forward for security clearance reform. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The federal government's wiped out its security clearance backlog of more than 500,000 cases. The clearance process, though, still hasn't seen the reform promised in the government's trusted workforce 2.0 plan. According to Brian Smith, senior fellow at George Mason University's National Security Institute, he's also a technical advisor at Beacon Global Strategies, writing about the security clearance uh, reform process in Federal Times with John Fitzpatrick. Brian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Uh, you and John write in this piece uh, regarding the clearance backlog. Well done. The major work of reform, however, still lies ahead. What, in your view, still needs to be done, Brian? Well, we cleared out that backlog of half a million cases through kind of a brute force approach. We added capacity, which had been severely reduced after OPM uh, let go one of its uh, contractors. And um, we also centralized the function in DOD, uh, did a few smart uh, policy moves, moving more to continuous evaluation to replace the five-year, uh, very lengthy periodic updates. Uh, but the process uh, still remains just about uh, the way it was 60 years ago. It's gumshoe, manual, uh, labor-intensive. So we think unless we uh, actually adopt new processes enabled by uh, modern, effective, secure IT, we'll just be uh, trying to perfect the buggy whip when what we really need is an electric car. You and John write in this piece, in recent years, the backlog got urgent attention, but transformation is arguably more important. And you make four recommendations. I'd like to walk through each of those in turn. The first one is to issue a presidential direction to cement personnel vetting reform as a government-wide priority. What would that do, just a statement from the president saying this is important? Why would that make a difference in your view? Well, uh, trusted workforce, 2.0 is a, an exquisite blueprint uh, produced by some uh, very smart people, very dedicated to drive out low value added processes and to streamline the process. Now, in the implementation, that's where it gets tough. Agencies can still find exceptions and, and, and the, the, the blueprint can get, uh, can get lost in that bureaucracy. So with the president's stamp on this with a national security directive, that would really provide impetus and help block potential roadblocks. 
The second recommendation that you make, I appreciate uh, the reference that you made to 60s oldies in this. Uh, you write, OMB, ODNI, and OP, o, uh, DOD and OPM must continue to collaborate as a performance accountability council, but we need a leader of the pack. Who should that leader of the pack be? Well, uh, it's less important who it is than that we have one. Uh, right now, it's a quad with ODNI, OMB, uh, uh, DOD, and OPM. Uh, and, uh, you know, usually you put OMB in that kind of role. Uh, that's, uh, the, the PAC had a leader in Clay Johnson when we went through this backlog business uh, uh, in, the, in the second Bush administration. The third recommendation that you and John make is taking full advantage of the NBIS rebaselining to make the fundamental program changes necessary for success. Is there agreement on what those program changes should be? Well, uh, I think there are some general agile software development principles that need to be followed. Uh, it's very important that this system be as much as possible in all of government system. Uh, because if, if um, different agencies are using different processes, different data, they're not going to trust each other. And we see that now, and it really complicates and lengthens the process of moving people from one agency to another, even at the same clearance levels. Um, the, uh, another uh, thing we look for is to have a really disciplined, centralized brokerage process for requirements and deliver functionality as it's available and communicate, communicate, communicate. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty about what's gonna be delivered, when and how. Uh, that needs, it, it would really benefit if that were a little more trans, transparent. But basically uh, uh, the, the IT system, the National Background Investigation Services System is what takes that blueprint and turns it into a house. I mean, in a house, uh, you, you've got carpenters to make things plumb and square. This IT uh, kind of does that metaphorically for, for this process. And it, it takes these great uh, uh, processes that TW Trust Workforce 2.0 established and automates them into an end-to-end -end case management system that is, uh, automates the workflow and hardwires the Trusted Workforce 2.0 blueprint. We have less than a minute left, Brian, uh, for the fourth recommendation, which is exercising expert independent acquisition oversight for NBIS within the Defense Department. Uh, give me a thumbnail on that one, please. Well, for virtually all major IT systems, um, either CIO or acquisition sustainment provides that, that professional oversight. And that could be very helpful here. I would just go back and say two more things we need here. Um, we need to make sure that uh, we reduce the variability in the processes that agencies follow. So they really need to, to do in common what is commonly done. And also we need greater information sharing. The repositories, uh, agencies retain information for themselves about uh, clearance holders, which is very valuable. And also, uh, also there's kind of a parallel universe between uh, the repository for uh, government for positions of trust. Think uh, custom agents, border patrol agents, who don't necessarily need security clearances and security clearance holders. And that information needs to be, if not in the same repository, at least shareable 
uh, between the repositories. Brian, thanks very much for coming on. Congratulations to, to you and John for this piece. Appreciate your time my, today. My pleasure, Francis. It was great being here. Thank you. Coming next, taking to the skies with a budget that's staying flat. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the Air Force and Space Force can make the most of their budget requests. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Air Force's budget request for fiscal 2021 is up slightly from last year at $207.1 billion. Bloomberg government's tracking the Air Force and Space Force budgets for the new fiscal year. Cameron Luthi is senior defense and budget analyst for Bloomberg government. Cameron, thanks for coming on the program. You flagged a bunch of things for me here about the Air Force and Space Force budgets. And I think the one that jumped out at me the most is... The uh, Air Force leads all military services in RDT&E spending. They're asking for $47.7 billion this fiscal year. What do you think the significance of that is, Cameron? Well, the Air Force has always been known as the technological service. Uh, among the three, they are the ones that uh, are the most interested in pursuing cutting-edge research. And so that they're leading the pack is not necessarily new news. But I think the, the real story is what's going on within the total RDT&E uh, budget and the shift away from um, more, how shall we say, incremental development and more towards uh, uh, big jumps in technology. Does that mean that they're pushing away from the RD part, the research and development, toward the T&E part of those four letters, Cameron? Or does it mean something else? So um, what we see over the FIDIP, so from 21 to 25, is an, an interesting um, phenomenon. We see an increase in spending on advanced component development and prototypes. So that's not, you know, the stages are basic, applied, advanced, and then we get to this advanced component development prototypes, which is the fourth stage of R&D, and that grows over the course of the FIDIP significantly. So that implies that they think they've found some things in the early stage research that will bear fruit going forward. You also point me to the IT spending requests at uh, the Air Force in this fiscal year. And what struck me as interesting about that is I don't, wouldn't anticipate any place in the federal government someone asking for less than they got the year before. You point out 8.2 billion in fiscal 2021 would be a slight reduction from the fiscal 2020. What's behind that? So there are, I think, a couple of parts to the story. The first part is um, that unclassified spending is going down on IT in the Air Force. Classified spending is increasing. So that's a big part of the story. The other part of the story, I think, is um, there's, there's a lot of research going forward in the Air Force on networks that, uh, and that's because the, the networks themselves have become much more vulnerable. So there's a lot of um, R&D related to networks in uh, areas of cybersecurity, uh, artificial intelligence, um, and other, other aspects that will make the networks of the future more robust, more survivable. One of the efforts that Will Roper has undertaken since he's been at the Air Force a number of years now is to drive efficiencies in software. They have all kinds of efforts, Kessel Run and AFWorks and others, where they're trying to do that. Is it 
is it reasonable to say that maybe the efficiencies that they're driving in software are resulting in some of the lower budget requests in the IT department, or is that a connection that's not really there? So I think it's too early to tell because while Roper's had a couple of years of runtime working on this, um, you know as well as I do that the, the commercial space is where a lot of the advances in IT are taking place. And so the Air Force is wisely trying to leverage those improvements to gain efficiencies. The first year, basically, of the Space Force budget-wise is this one. This is where we start to really get a sense of where they're headed budget priority-wise. What do you see as you examine the numbers for the Space Force specifically, Cameron? So one of the big takeaways from the budget for the Space Force is that uh, a huge percentage of it is devoted to research, development, test, and evaluation, which is probably no surprise. Um, other uh, sort of... Uh, takeaways that you could look at from the $15 billion plus budget for the first, first Space Force budget are that um, the lumpiness, right? We know that some of the space uh, assets are very expensive. They don't have large production runs. So think lift, think satellites, those sorts of capabilities are, are, are lumpy. And um, so you'll see changes in uh, expendable launch vehicle and other programs where you have these big swings. One year there's a lot of money, the next year there's not. Um, we have about 30 seconds left, Cameron. What would you watch moving forward, especially as uh, budgets are approved by Congress for this year? And we don't know when that will happen, but the, the thing that we're going to be watching the most closely is probably the command control and communications budgets and the contracting that devolves from that. Cameron Luthi, great to have you as always. Thanks very much. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.